As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today, we pick up our journey through the book of Acts with chapter 17, verses 16 through 31. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the time of human ignorance, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Allison Gopnik runs the Cognitive Development and Learning Lab at UC Berkeley, where she teaches in both the psychology and philosophy departments. She is also a grandmother. And like many grandparents during the pandemic, she went nearly a year without seeing her grandchildren in person. When she finally was able to visit them recently, she was struck when the first things her five-year-old grandson said were, I love you, grandmom. And then, you know, Grandmom, do you still have that book you have at your house with the little boy who has this white suit and he goes to the island with the monsters on it and then he comes back again? 
Do you know what book he was talking about? It's Maurice Sendak's classic, Where the Wild Things Are, a story about a boy named Max who dresses up in a wolf costume and wreaks such havoc that he is sent to bed without his supper. But then, Max's bedroom magically transforms into a jungle, and Max sails away to an island inhabited by frightening beasts who eventually name Max their king and join with him in a wild rumpus. Finally, Max gets lonely and decides to return to his bedroom where he finds his supper waiting for him, and it is still hot. This story is a wonderful metaphor for both the allure and the fear of the unknown. Alison Gopnik says that what is so quintessentially human about this story is that Max can have this imaginary adventure while in his room, in his house, where his mom is, even if she's mad at him, and where his supper is going to be. It is from a place of security and safety that Max can imagine, venture out, and encounter the unknown. Since his encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, Paul has been proclaiming the gospel to Jews in cities and towns throughout the Mediterranean. But the message has not always been well received. And Paul comes to Athens after having been kicked out of the last two cities he's visited. The plan is for him to wait for his partners, Timothy and Silas, but while he waits, Paul notices that this cosmopolitan city, home to the ancient Greeks with their poets and mythology, is full of idols. Deeply distressed by this, Paul can't help himself. He finds the synagogue, the place where the Jews go to worship and learn. The synagogue represents for Paul what is known and safe and comfortable. The Jews are his people, after all, and in a foreign city, this is where Paul feels at home. At home enough that he decides to venture beyond the synagogue and out into the marketplace. Not unlike Max, who from his room transports himself to a new and unknown land. Just as Max is a curiosity to the wild things, Paul is a curiosity to the Athenians. In Athens, the marketplace is not only a place to exchange goods, but also to exchange ideas, to learn something new. And the ideas Paul shares are ideas these Athenians have never heard before. The proclamation of a whole new kind of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, who is not created by humans, but who gives all mortals life and breath. In some cities, this proclamation would have been enough to get Paul thrown out of the marketplace, but not in Athens. Because Athens was a place where new ideas were not only welcome, but sought out. The people there spent their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Last Tuesday, we had the privilege of learning from University of Virginia psychologist and family therapist Claudia Allen about how to support the mental health of children. She reminded us of the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. 
A fixed mindset assumes that our character, intelligence, and creativity are static. They really cannot change in any meaningful way. In a fixed mindset, success or failure simply confirms how much or how little of these gifts we have been given. A growth mindset, on the other hand, thrives on challenge, on learning how to do something new. A growth mindset sees failure not as evidence of unintelligence, but as a springboard for growth and learning. Clearly, the Athenians operated out of a growth mindset. They were not only open to, but sought out new ideas. Paul has experienced in more than one city that his gospel message is not well received in the synagogues. Apparently, people who are steeped in a religious tradition become fixed in their mindsets, especially regarding who God is and how God engages with the world. This fixed mindset makes it difficult for them to receive Paul's message that the God of Israel has done something new and completely unexpected. God has come in the person of Jesus to make God's power and love known. And when Jesus was killed, God raised him from the dead. In Athens, Paul discovers that it's the Gentiles who are more open to this good news of Jesus Christ than Paul's own people who, in theory, knew more about the God of Jesus than the Athenians did. This is an important reminder for us. For the most part, we are institutional Christians, steeped in tradition and rooted in a theology that has been developed and honed over millennia, which means we probably have more in common with those in the synagogue in Athens than in the marketplace. We shouldn't feel badly about this. After all, it's simply human that over time, for pretty much all of us, our mindsets become more fixed and less malleable. We all get attached to certain ways of doing things, ways of worshiping and gathering together and doing business, but also ways of understanding God. And it is difficult for us to accept or engage something new until something happens to dislocate and disrupt us. Something like a global pandemic in which our very bodies and breath become potentially deadly to others. Something like a series of events that reveals the fault lines and inequities in our culture as clearly as broken bones on an x-ray film. Something like a tragic loss or a devastating diagnosis or a blindsiding betrayal. The writer and church historian Diana Butler Bass recently wrote about the last 14 months in terms of dislocation. She identified four kinds of dislocation we have all experienced. Temporal, historical, physical, and relational. That sense of uncertainty and anxiety we have all felt to some degree is what Bass labels dislocation. And she suggests that religious communities like ours need to be in the business of relocation, of finding what has been lost, repairing what has been broken, 
and re-grounding people into their own lives and communities. This kind of relocation is what Paul tries to do for the Athenians who are so eager to learn something new. He starts by calling attention to the altar they have built to an unknown God. Paul meets the Athenians at their place of uncertainty and wonder, which is always a place of possibility. If we can admit there is something we don't yet know or understand, we immediately become open to the possibility of learning something new. In his sermon, Paul seeks to connect the dots for the Athenians between what they know and what they don't know. This has always been one of the primary, most important tasks of religion, which is encapsulated in the word itself. The word religion comes from the Latin religare, meaning to bind or to reconnect. Religion takes what is broken, what has been lost, what is dislocated, and offers a means of repair, of finding, of relocating, building a bridge between the known and the unknown. The marketplace in Athens reminds us that the dislocation we have experienced isn't all bad, for it can bring us to a place of openness to something new by helping us admit there are things we don't know. What this season has taught us is that certain former ways of doing things no longer work as they once did. Ways of teaching children in school, ways of designing our communities, ways of crafting our schedules. We have come face to face with the reality that there is so much we don't know. And the sense of dislocation that accompanies that realization serves a purpose. It dislodges us from a fixed mindset into a growth mindset, a place where we can become more open than we were before to the possibility that God just might be calling us to new ways of living and learning and caring and loving God's people. In the marketplace, Paul meets the Athenians where they are and affirms the truths they have already named, quoting some of their own poets back to them. He reveals that what they've been searching for in their desire to learn and grow is nothing less than the God of all creation, who used God's power to become human and to invite all of us on a path of transformation. It is a message so new and so unexpected that it doesn't convince everyone who hears it, at least not at first. But this is the message Paul will continue to preach, not just to those who think they already know God, but even to those who recognize that God can never be fully known. We have been, we are, in a season of extraordinary dislocation, a season that has humbled us, that has shown us the limits of our control, that has disrupted our lives. But remember Max from Where the Wild Things Are? When he experiences dislocation, he indulges his hunger for adventure 
and discovery. Trusting in God's love and in the strength of our community, may we encourage one another to embrace that growth mindset, to stay open to the new thing God is doing among us as we continue on a journey that bridges the church and the marketplace, where we can both share and encounter something exciting and new. Amen.